This episode is made possible by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, working to build a more healthy, just, and inclusive future for everyone at czi.org. Another night of chaos and unrest as anger over police killings spread to every corner of the country. In the week since George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis, protesters across the country have continued to fill the streets, looking to turn their outrage over police violence against black people into action. We need reform. We need officers, male and female, to hold each other accountable. And Americans are grappling with what reform can and should look like. Congressional Democrats introduced a sweeping set of policing reforms in response to Floyd's death and protesters' demands. A lot of ideas are on the table. Banning tactics like chokeholds, more transparency, even calls to defund the police, meaning take money from police departments and spend it on social services that may prevent crime in the first place. There's no consensus. But many people are pointing to the city of Camden, New Jersey, as an example of what reforming a police department can look like. Leaders say the South Jersey city is the safest it's been in decades, and they say it's the result of a huge team effort. But is Camden a success story? In this episode, a closer look at what Camden got right. Having been a, a practitioner and, and probably an expert practitioner in a lot of failed police practices, I was willing to put aside the, the, the traditional methods and strategies and really try something that was, was new. And where it falls short. Generally, there's still a feeling of, we don't like police here. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Hari Srinivasan. Camden is a small city in New Jersey just across the river from Philadelphia. It's got a bit more than 70,000 people, more than 90% are black, Hispanic, or Latino. The median income is around $27,000, and more than a third live below the poverty line, making it one of the poorest places in New Jersey. The police department was, was failing. Public works was non-existent. Uh, it was just a city of disorder. That's Scott Thompson. He was the police chief during some of the roughest times the city has seen. While other places were on the road to recovery from the 2008 financial crisis, Camden was not. It was running out of money. Budgets were slashed, and the police department laid off nearly half its officers in 2011. When you take, a, take away half of a police department, there is absolutely no way that the officers left can cover the same amount of ground in the same amount of time. Murders soared. The city had a record 67 in 2012. Back then, there wasn't any single incident like George Floyd's death that was a tipping point for change, but under pressure to reduce crime on a limited budget, the local government took the unprecedented step of disbanding the entire city's police department. They dissolved the union and built a new force. May 1st, 2013 was the, was the day of the official switchover. I first met Thompson back in 2017, four years into the process of rebuilding the department. For him, the switchover wasn't just about rebuilding the force as it had been. He wanted to change the way they police, too. We have greater lines of communication now, um, which has given us a tremendous ability to, to, to not only solve crime, but prevent crime from occurring in the first place. 
Now, after George Floyd's killing, communities and police departments are looking at policies on use of force and de-escalation tactics with new urgency. So we wanted to go back to Thompson, who'd made these kinds of changes, to find out what the department learned. So there's Camden County. You get something that almost no one gets, a, a chance to start with a totally clean slate, given the area that you're working, all the problems that you know exist there. Tell me a little bit about what you set out to do with this. I had been swimming against the current trying to change culture, and now I had an opportunity to build culture, uh, a blank sheet of paper, if you will, to create a new police force in, in a community that desperately needed uh, one to be effective. It started with retraining his officers. They'd lost the trust of their citizens. Thompson had to figure out how to get his officers to rethink their response to situations, but also how they interacted with the community they serve. Doing less harm first, which, you know, the kind of the Hippocratic oath of policing, that's a non-negotiable issue. And if, if you don't agree with me, you know, you, could, you can go work for another organization. But even after the changeover, there were high numbers of excessive force complaints. So much of his focus was on changing officers' mindsets. He wanted officers knocking on doors and walking beats, meeting residents, throwing block parties and barbecues. Thompson told me in 2017 that officers had to stop seeing themselves as warriors and think more like guardians. You still have to have the warrior mentality and the ability to, to trigger that, that, that warrior element when the time calls for it. However, that should not be your operating premise. That should be the anomaly, right? That should be the exception, not the rule. But changing mindsets is just one part of reform. We weren't just going to engage in training and then check the box and say we're moving on. Um, we have actually made the, the mandate to de-escalate situations part of our policy. They also change policies around how and when police can use force a question that dominates today's conversation about how departments should change. Tell me a little bit about, you know, use of force guidelines, for example. You changed those. Um, how did you enforce that and ensure some accountability for your officers? So we don't just view force that's used as, uh, was, it, was it consistent with our policy and was it consistent with the law? We review every incident of force that's used uh, with multiple layers of review, from the first-line supervisor to the commander to an internal affair review to the training unit review. We put it under, under tremendous amounts of scrutiny. And look, uh, I'd like to say that I think that about you know, 98% of the officers get it. Uh, and when the 2 or 3% that don't, we've got pretty reliable systems in place that uh, we identify them quickly and, uh, and, and we address them with, with an absolute sense of certainty when they, when they arise. It's hard to draw cause and effect here, but excessive force complaints have gone down. Last year, there were three complaints, down from a peak of 65 in 2014. And overall, murders and violent crimes have decreased steadily. Thompson says it's all progress, but he warns cities that may try to do what Camden did, there will be challenges. Would it have been possible to do this if you didn't disband, didn't deunionize? It would, it, it, sometimes no. And a lot would depend upon the jurisdiction and where you're in. Um, 
some labor organizations yield more influence and power than police chiefs and some even more than than the elected leaders themselves. Um, in the previous organization, trying to make some type of change like that would have been tied up through the grievance and litigation process. And it could have stalled the implementation of the policy change. It could have ultimately been ruled against by some arbitrator. And, and that is a dynamic that does exist across this country of the, uh, the role that police unions play in the ability to reform. At the same time, Thompson admits they got things wrong. After the overhaul, there was a massive uptick in the number of arrests and summons for petty crimes. I, I learned that, um, that my officers were, were handing out um, tickets at, at a rate that was disproportionate with what our ideology was. And, uh, and I even had the New Jersey ACLU come to me and, uh, and ask me why, if what we're doing is trying to build communities, why are we doing this? Hmm. Uh, I immediately pivoted that day and sent out an order to the organization that from this point forward, any interactions with or investigations that are, that are predicated upon some type of uh, infraction, uh, the preferred outcome is a warning and not to give a summons. We are an organization of human beings. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not without sin. We're not without people that should not be cops. It was an evolution. We learned a lot in the process. And uh, how we got better through this and how we, we, we progressed was, was to be educated and be informed by, by the people that we worked for in the community. Scott Thompson retired in 2019. Camden has made headlines nationally as a success story. Police data shows violent crime dropped 42% from 2012 to 2019, and overall crime has fallen too. But at the same time, people who've lived there for decades question that narrative and say it looks different on the ground. I can speak really, really clearly in saying that, yo, a lot of people had the opinion like, man, the cops, with the cops here, they could take them or leave them. And a narrative that Camden is a model or exemplar for other cities, it's, it's not accurate. It's not complete anyway. This is Keith Eric Benson. He's lived in Camden for 20 years, taught social studies there for 14, and is now the president of the Camden Teachers Union. He thinks after generations of tension and mistrust of the police, people in Camden see the changes as just a drop in the bucket. Well, what do your students think about it? Um, they don't like the police. Period. Why not? Um, they view the police as harassing. They have experience seeing their old, you know, their older brothers or aunts and uncles victimized by police. So there's not necessarily this well of goodwill that's been built up. That's going to take time. And no amount of giving water ices and, you know, cooking burgers is going to make up for years and years and years of abuse and disrespect from the police on, on, on this community. For Benson, part of the problem is many of the new officers hired by the county department are white and from surrounding suburbs. He says officers can't build trust in a community they don't even live in. Police can come in assuming the worst about people, not necessarily knowing who they're dealing with. And that's what a lot of the, that's what a lot of the early experiences with the county police force were, is that everyone was a problem. And that made folks long even more for the prior police force because at least they knew who were, they, they knew who was who. They knew who trouble wakers were. They, they knew the new folks in the community. And that mattered. Hmm. There is a very positive feeling from residents toward our firefighters. And I don't find that strange considering a lot of our firefighters live in the city. 
on my block. I can really turn around and throw a stone and hit two firefighters' houses. I know them outside their capacity to put out fires. Mm. We play basketball together. We play football together. Those interactions don't happen with the police. So if you initiated a residency requirements where all these police officers for the Camden County Police Department had to live in Camden, I think that would gradually change because you start to see these police officers in another capacity. Another major sticking point for Benson is the demographics of the department don't reflect the people they serve. The force is currently 54% non-white. That's 7% lower than it was before the department was rebuilt. Remember, Camden is more than 90% non-white. Former Camden Police Chief Thompson agrees diversity is important, and recruiting inside the city is too. But he says he was hamstrung by bureaucracy and a glacial hiring pace. When you're looking at one of the nation's poorest cities, and you can have a police job, it's fundamentally unfair when those people cannot have opportunity to be employed by that department. And when the grandmom would say to me, uh, Chief, my grandson enjoys seeing what's going on here. I enjoy seeing what's going on here. I'd love for him to be a member of your organization. Or my daughter would like to do this as well. Our response is, okay, go to this website, fill out an application on the state website, In about three years, you'll get an email telling you when to take the test. And then about four or five months after that, we'll call you to hire. But Benson says the problem is decisions like who to hire and who makes policy are too often made by people outside the community. And the ones left out of the conversation are the ones affected the most. Ask somebody who you've known or might be recognized as a a community uh, troublemaker or somebody who might have ran afoul of the law before. Ask them what their opinions of the police are and how they could be better. And I think that would really go a long way because that's, that's a voice that's completely ignored when it comes to this narrative. If that feeling of distrust and being left out of the discussion sounds familiar, it's because in this moment, these sentiments are echoing around the country and in some places are leading to calls for entirely dismantling police departments. I asked Thompson what he thought of that. You know, right now the conversation in much larger parts of the country than you'd expect, the conversation surrounding police reform is including this idea, defunding the police. The idea that you should redistribute some of the money that police departments have now and use it for other parts of your community, social services. What, what do you think of that? Well, so one, I think that it would help if if there was a clear definition established of what defunding the police meant. It seems to have multiple meanings to, to, to various uh, individuals. I've heard some of it represented as the complete abolishment of policing. Uh, and I've heard others talk more along the lines of what, what you just described. So... The abolishment of policing, I, I don't even think, is a logical conversation that can be had. Mm. And, I mean, vigilanteism doesn't work. And ironically, the people who are victimized the most by, by police violence are the people that rely upon the police the most and summons the police the most. I don't think most people in those communities want to get rid of the police. They just want the police to behave differently. And... That was really the key issue. That's what we saw. When we got rid of the police off of our city streets, things did not go well. You know, those that operated with an absolute sense of impunity victimized as many people as they could. And little children couldn't walk the streets. People couldn't sit on their front steps. That, that was not a good thing. Mm. 
conversely, when we had officers and we could populate these neighborhoods and they were not engaging in polarizing tactics such as a massive arrests or issuing tickets, what we found was that the neighborhoods became stabilized and there were healthy relationships that, that, that we were beginning to establish. And then a lot of great things really came from there. Benson doesn't think cities should wipe out the police either, but he does think you need to reallocate funding. If more money was put in preventative programs like community development, recreation for kids and things like that, um, you wouldn't have these sort of crime issues the way that you see them right now. But there have been sort of deliberate decisions to take money away from people and put it in the hands of police. Um, so for defunding the police, do I think that, that there should be no police? No, I wouldn't say that. But the, the way police look can change. And those looks cost money. Police don't need to look like they're going to, to battle. They don't, they don't need to look like they're going to Fallujah, right? You're policing a community where most people are law-abiding citizens going about their day. They just happen to live in a certain space. So take off your gun, mm-hmm. right? Take off your boots, take off your helmet, these types of things. Look like a simple civilian. And all that stuff costs money. And you can save a whole lot of money simply just changing their uniform. Camden has done more than just about anywhere to try and reform its police department. Yet people there, like Keith Benson, say it's still not enough to mend broken trust in police. So should activists and lawmakers look to Camden as a model for a place where reform has been done right, or as a cautionary tale? I will always say that more than one thing can be true at the same time. Can they have changed their Mm. policing model? Yes. Do some people feel positively about the changes that they may believe that they're seeing? Yes. But I'm also cognizant enough to know the people whose opinions are being contributed aren't necessarily representative of me or the people who are more likely to be having to deal with the police officers when the police are doing their jobs. So the police officers have a long way to go and they're actually talking about uh, an honest and authentic attitude shift from residents toward the police. My biggest fear at a moment like this is that policing as, as an institution and its leadership circles the wagons and folds its arms, that they become so defensive by the loud voices that they don't listen to the message. Um, that's the worst mistake we could make in this. In a democracy, the police derive their authority from the consent of the people. If you don't have the consent of the people, you don't have legitimacy. A reminder that you can follow all the NewsHour coverage of coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter protests on our website, pbs.org newshour. This episode was produced by Leah Nagy, Jay Wancha, and Bika Aronson. It was edited by Erica R. Henry and Emily Carpo. Production assistance from Maya Lene Bura. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. Our executive producer is Sarah Just.